All right, we've got a couple of announcements for everyone to pay attention to. Number one is that we're going to have our annual rained out picnic on uh, October the 16th. We'll just add that for flavor right now, but well, everybody will be praying that it won't get rained out. Okay, that's number one. Plan on that for the um, October the 16th. Men's prayer breakfast is coming up a week from Saturday, and that is on the 18th at 7.30 in the morning. And then we have next Thursday night. How many of y'all are going to be here next Thursday night? Very good. Everybody passes with a perfect score. Yes, we will not be meeting here next Thursday night because of the Council of Dis- on Dispensational Hermeneutics that is meeting next all day next Wednesday and next Thursday at Sugarland Bible Church. You can sign up for it online at dispensationalcouncil.org. And instead of coming here on Thursday night, I encourage you to go listen, live stream it on Thursday night, and uh, we'll see what we all learn then um, I think that pretty much covers it. So make sure that you're not, not here. The other thing is prayer. We have several, several important prayer requests. First of all, we need to be praying for Brett Nasworth. As of this morning, he was feeling some better. They put him on additional antibiotics and some other things. He was feeling a little better yesterday and some better uh, this evening or this afternoon when I talked to him, so or texted with him. We also need to pray for Bob Beaver. He's improving some, and he they expect him to be in the hospital maybe to the early, early part of next week. Have you had an update? Oh, stomach pumps pulled out today, so that's good, and he can eat, and that's good. So he's he's definitely improving, but he has a long way to go. Uh, D. Friels still needs prayer for oxygen and strengthen that he can find a good rehab hospital, and then also for Margaret Langridge and her serious uh, cancer that she's struggling with. There are many others. I have reports, and not everybody wants their names mentioned, but we have a number of people who are closely associated with this ministry who are live streamers, and they are dealing with uh, having uh, the COVID uh, virus. So we need to be in prayer for for all of those people. And we need to be in prayer for our nation, and we need to be in prayer for the tyrant in the White House who is now trying to issue executive orders to mandate he wants to force everybody to get vaccinated. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you agree or disagree with vaccinations. What it's all about is destroying our civil liberties, and we cannot stand for that. We cannot allow our civil liberties. And so people in companies and corporations that he's targeting need to fight this. Go to court, do everything necessary, deal with your congressman, and communicate with them. But this needs to be fought with every legal tool possible. Because once you start losing in one area of your civil liberties, as we saw last year, Pretty soon they're going to be shut like they did in California and they're doing in in Canada. They're going to want to shut down churches. They're going to want to uh, dictate all kinds of other things. This is the path of tyranny, and we must fight it. We cannot sit on the sidelines anymore. 
and we need to make this primarily a matter of prayer because this is the result of living in a nation that has turned its back on God, abandoned God, and is not uh, concerned at all, trying to create their own reality. But there's a vast number of people in this, this nation who have not followed that path, and it's being crammed down our throat, and we need to do what we can to deal with that. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and confess sin if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are our Redeemer, and you are the architect of human history, which is the outworking of your plan. And Father, we have no idea what you have planned for the future other than the broad uh, portraits that you've given in the Scripture in terms of the end of the church age and beyond. But Father, we know that we must pray for our nation, we must pray for leaders, we must pray for the godly ones who are in Congress who are seeking to stop these things, those who desire to live by the rule of law, live by the rule of our Constitution, live on the basis of a Judeo-Christian worldview, the only way that we can have freedom. And yet, Father, so many in this nation have turned their back on you. And, Father, our, our primary mission is to uh, take the gospel to those who are unsaved. And whether they reject us or not, that's, that's another issue. But our job is to uh, be a witness, be a light, be a witness with our lives and with our lips. And Father, we pray that you might give us opportunities and the courage to take advantage and the initiative in these, in these uh, opportunities. Father, we pray that you might change the thinking of our um, president and those around him. But on the other hand, we believe that they have set their hearts firmly against you in rebellion. But, Father, we do pray that you, they would change and that w there might be a shift in the pattern and that you would raise up those who can lead in opposition and under the law, according to the law, challenging what needs to be challenged on the basis of our Constitution. Father, we pray that whatever happens, we might be, have a relaxed mental attitude and we might be calm and trust in you and rest in you, for you are our strength and our fortress you are our strong tower, and you are our shield. And, Father, we trust in you to deliver us. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we might gain a greater understanding of what this passage means and the way it is stated so that its purpose is really to challenge us to how we live today, not to satisfy curiosity about the future, but to challenge us to how we live our lives today. And so we pray that you might open our eyes to the truth of this passage. In Christ's name, amen. All right. This is one of those fun days that I enjoy as a pastor when all of a sudden I start seeing things and things start coming together on a difficult passage. And unfortunately, it occurred about 5.30, which doesn't give me a whole lot of time to go back and redo my notes because it wasn't until... And this is what happens sometimes. How many times do you read a mystery 
And you get to the last chapter, and all of a sudden you find clues that you didn't know about before, and it changes your whole perspective on everything, and then boom, now you start to figure out who, who did it. And that's sort of the way this was. By the time I got down into verse 12 and 13, I started seeing patterns and some connections that weren't as obvious in the first two verses. And then as I went back, I saw, well, those same patterns were in those verses, and so it starts to open up a little bit. So we'll, we're going to have a big part of this is a review from last week because I'm going to, what I'm going to try to do is this. I'm going to scare you to death tonight. We're going to go fast and furious, and we're going to go through all four verses and get the, the main structure and idea. And then two weeks from now, because we're not meeting next week, then we'll come back and clean it up and hit some fine points and do some more review. Because for all of us, what we're dealing with is a passage where we've always heard one interpretation And yet what I'm discovering, and I have found two new highly respected dispensational theologians in the last couple of days that take this this other position. And it is not one that was a dominant position uh, coming out of Dallas Theological Seminary, but there are others from other equally respected schools, some of whom actually went to Dallas and changed their views once they got out and started exegeting the text and discovering that there were some difficulties with the most popular view. And still today I run into, as I talk to other pastors, that never, at least I've heard of this view. I didn't have a lot of respect for it, but I heard of this view at least 40 years ago, but a lot of people that I've talked to haven't ever heard of it. I mean, I'm talking about people who have their PhDs in, and their field of major was in theology, specifically dispensational theology. So that's how unusual this is. That's why it takes us some time to kind of retool the way we think. In fact, one pastor, longtime friend of mine, I said, go, go back, see what you think about last week. And he said, well, you pretty much convinced me, and, and I, I think both positions are correct. <laughs> so, and that's kind of how we are. It's like Mike Stallard started into this a little bit, get, did give me a little hint to go in one direction, but he said, my feet are firmly planted, planted in midair. All right, so here we are. We're looking at... And I've chosen this from the 12th verse where it's translated, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It's not hastening. It has to do with having a uh, a desire, and I'll get into that when we get there. It's looking for and an eager desire for the coming of the day of the Lord. So we're in this last chapter of Second Peter where God is refuting the false teachers and their denial of the literal second coming. Now, we're going to look at this because as we look at verse 10 and the phrase, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Seems like it's a clear case that the present heavens and earth are going to be absolutely and totally destroyed. 
However, that verse isn't translated very well at all, I've discovered. So we look at the day of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of debate on the day of the Lord, as I pointed out. There are those like Schofield who think it begins with the second coming at the end of the tribulation and extends through the thousand years to the great white throne judgment and the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21.1 comes after that. Then you have those who view the day of the Lord uh, from just after the rapture and through the millennium. So it's going to include a a thousand and seven years and that's Harry Ironside, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, Walford, Ryrie, Pentecost, Theme, Showers, Bowman. Then you have those who think it's um, just the second coming or, or the end uh, or as one, just two time periods, just at the end of the tribulation or ju- and just at the end of the millennium. But it excludes most of the trib and most of the millennium. And that's primarily Dick Mayhew. And I put Randy and Tommy's name in there because they both recommended recommended to me Mayhew's article, thought it was the best, but I don't think they quite buy into all of it either. Um, And then there's Arnold Fruchtenbaum who takes it as the tribulation only, nothing in the millennium. And then Lou Barbieri's got an odd view, the rapture. uh, It's either the rapture uh, or it's the rapture or the second coming. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, we went through all the passages and saw that it is emphasized as a time of judgment, a time of darkness and not light in Amos, a time of divine judgment in Joel, and a time when God directly intervenes in human history to bring judgment. Now, we looked at this passage, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And I began to look at this in light of the, the last verse, which is up there, 13, 3.13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this is the Greek word kainos. There are two Greek words to hopefully remind you. One is neos, N-E-O-S, the other is kainos, like the title of a Greek New Testament is kaine diatheke. Diatheke is the word for covenant or testament. Kaine is the word for new. So this has the idea of something that is um, new, not brand new, but is a renewal of something. So I... Um, We'll come back to this and that in just a minute. Here's my overview. I had to do this real fast while I was standing up here, so I kind of put it in the wrong place, but we'll deal with it now. This is the overview. This is our passage. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You have words like heavens, pass away, melt, heat, burned up. Sounds pretty destructive. Second Peter 3.11, Therefore, since all these things, what does these things refer to? All these things will be dissolved. What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening, we can't do anything to hurry up the coming of the day of God. That's a bad translation. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved. There we have the word dissolved again. Actually, it's the third time we have that Greek word. It's translated as melt in verse 10. It doesn't mean melt. 
it has the idea, we'll see, really of destruction in some sense, but not an annihilation. And I'll show you why. Um, because of which, again, we have the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just a couple of observations uh, as, we, as we start this, that we have three times we have the phrase heavens. The heavens in verse 10, the heavens in verse 12, and the heaven, new heavens in verse 13. What exactly is that describing? Is that describing the sun, moon, stars, galaxies, cosmos, the physical universe? Or is that describing the inhabitants of the physical universe? We'll have to look at that. Then it says that, then there's a parallel in the next slide. You'll see that heavens is parallel to the elements. So this phrase, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, is a synonymous parallelism with the elements will be destroyed with fervent heat. That is an important observation. Because what that tells us is that the heavens and the elements are going to be somewhat synonymous. And you don't have a clue how that can be right now. And that the elements, when it says the elements will be destroyed, it's the same word, luo, that is translated dissolved here since all these things will be dissolved. And then down here, it's repeated again. You have the heavens will be dissolved. Notice that the heavens will pass away. The elements will be dissolved. Down here, it's the heavens will be dissolved and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So you have this stated twice. And you have that parallelism in both places. But we have the the words that are used here have a range of meaning. But if you get the hermeneutical key there that it, you're looking at one area, then everything makes sense. That's what I realized about 530. So let's look at this. The word new, it's the same new that's used in new heavens and new earth. Uh, Kainos, it's the same word that's used if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, all things are passed away. That's the same word passed away that relates to the heavens passing away. And it's not destruction or annihilation. It is moving and transitioning from one stage to the next stage. That's how it's used. It's not talking about being totally annihilated because when you... Are a new are are saved and you're a new creature. You still look the same. You still have the same body. Still have the same sin nature. But we're a new creature in Christ. It's the next stage. Old things have passed away. We're moved to the next stage. We're regenerated. Now that I've used that word, remember the contrast here between the two views is total annihilation or renewal. Renewal is a word that goes along with regeneration. What did Jesus call the millennium? Remember the, um, 
Oh, the Sadducees tried to trick him one day, and they came up to him, and they said, okay, we got a hypothetical for you. We're going to ask you a, que- a question for somebody else. Um, you have a lady. She gets married. He dies somewhat later. She marries his brother, Leverett Marriage. And then he dies. And then she marries again the third time, and he dies. And she goes through seven brothers. Where's the DA? No. Um, and they ask, well, who's, who, who, whose husband is she going to be in the afterlife? Now, number one, they don't believe in an afterlife. So they're just setting Jesus up, and he, he, he calls them on it. And he says, look, when you're in the, rege- the regeneration, that's his term for the millennium. The regeneration, he calls it, it's a renewal. It's a regeneration. He says, in the regeneration, we're not marrying or giving in marriage. We're going to be like the angels. Okay, so that's this whole idea here. So there's this transition from one stage to the next. And so the word kainos indicates this as being uh, new in terms of this kind of transition. Now, the word that was used by R.C. Trench was quantitative. Okay, this gets confusing. I know this. It, it drives me nuts, but this is the language they use. You've got two views on this. The quantitative view is the view that everything is destroyed and you get a whole new quantity. You get a whole new universe. You get a whole new heavens and earth created ex nihilo. And that would be naos. Okay, so that would all go together. So he doesn't use naos. If it's new in quality, because it's gone from one stage to the next stage of improvement, it's a qualitative new, that's kainos. So that's what that's talking about. It's not talking about, that, that alone indicates it's not talking about absolute destruction and something brand new. Then I was looking this up in the... Um, New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, and that's just the top part. I should have erased the second part. Um, and where they say, in secular usage, kainos denotes that which is, and they use the same word, qualitatively new as compared with what has existed until now, that which is better than the old, whereas naos is used temporally for that which has not yet been, that which has just made its appearance. In other words, new is something that's brand new, and kainos is something brand new. Kainos is something that has been renewed. Greg Beale, who I wouldn't recommend him, he's a post-millennial hyper-Calvinist, went to seminary with him, and he was one of the guys that went over to the dark side. Uh, He says there's a qualitative distinction between the two world orders. Kainos usually indicates newness in terms of quality, not time, and newness in time, quantity, is a typical nuance of naos. Okay, so just the Greek word for new there doesn't indicate something brand new replacing something else. So based on that analysis, it seems that the renewal view seems better. Second thing we saw is this word day of the Lord, which we saw as primarily judgment, is associated with this phrase as a thief in the night. Now, if you have an 
New American Standard, New International Version, ESV, one of those, other than the New King James or King James, it's going to just say come as a thief. Well, this association with the day of the Lord coming like a thief is found in numerous passages. Uh, Matthew twenty four forty two. watch therefore, you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. All through Matthew 24, the coming is the second coming. It's not the rapture. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come. So you have this thief imagery associated with the second coming. Luke 12, 39, what hour the thief would come. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 2, the, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. It's talking about the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 3, 3 uh, and, and Revelation 16, 5 all have this same nuance. It never ta- it's not talking about somebody coming at the end of the millennium. Because Jesus is already here. He's been here for a thousand years ruling over the planet. So the, it, you know, it, it can't refer to that. And then we looked at the context. The context is 2 Peter 3, 4 says, where is the promise of his coming? And we saw that that word can refer to either the rapture or the second coming. The millennial view doesn't really take that word into account, but Look at where we have it. We have it in 2 Peter 3, 4. And then Peter's answer to this is the Lord's not slack concerning his his promise. Notice what the issue is. The scoffers are scoffing and they say, where's the promise of his coming? He's never coming back. And Peter's response is the Lord is not slack about his promise. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, the will come isn't parousia, but the day of the Lord is that coming. And then look at what he says in verse 12. Looking for and eagerly anticipating the coming of the day of God. That's parousia. So you have parousia in the scoffer's question. You have parousia again here, which tells you that it's all talking about the same thing, which is the day of the Lord that comes at the end of the tribulation. You have the phrase new heaven and new earth. How many times is it used? Four passages. It's used in Isaiah 50, 65, Isaiah 66. It's the only time it's used in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, 17, last week we read through the whole passage. It starts with, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. But everyone agrees, all dispensationalists who are premillennial agree, this is talking about the millennium, not after the millennium. And then Isaiah 66, 15 to 22, concludes in verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, so shall your descendants in your name remain. Again, 15 to 22 is clearly talking about the millennium. So in terms of that word usage, the only two times it's used before Peter uses it and it refers to the millennium. So there's no indication he's assigning it new meaning. He's not talking about something else. He's writing to Jews. This is very important. Peter's Peter's Jewish. His primary uh, first language was either Hebrew or Aramaic. He is talking to Jews. He's, He's 
talking to them, and he's using language that comes out of the Torah. So he says he's going to use, he's not going to create a new meaning out of thin air. And then what we read in verse 10 is, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And I pointed out that this word pass away last time, per erkamai, is, um, is a word that means to go past a reference point or to come to an end and no longer be there to pass away, to disappear, or it has the idea of going from one stage to the next. Michael Spiegel says, and he's a professor at Dallas, and he just wrote an article on this passage, which is pretty good. He, I think he misses some things, but, it, but it's, a, it's a good argument. He says, the terms translated to pass away do not mean to be annihilated. The terms are neutral, simply referring to going away or departing. One of these terms, par erkomai, refers to the old things of the believer's life that have passed away in 2 Corinthians 5.17, drawing similarly on new creation imagery and implying a remolding of a person's life and character, not an annihilation of the old and replacement of the new. So par erkamai is used in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which gives us a clear understanding in relation to new and old. It's used in 2 Peter 3.10, and it's used again in Revelation 21.1, which says, I saw a new heavens and new earth. The old passed away. So those, that, that's a thread that ties them all together. Okay. Ray Bowman, in his book on the kingdom of God, the kingdom visualized, says it never means annihilated, but to pass over from one position in time or space to another position. All right, I'm just going to skip these. So now we get to a really fun part. What is it meant by the heavens? I pointed out that you have the word heavens used in 10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And then when you get down to verse uh, 12, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. And you get down to verse 13, and it's a new heavens, a new earth. What does heavens mean? Well, we, it's parallel to stoicheia elements. So it, I'm going to suggest that heavens is somewhat synonymous to stoicheia. And everybody looks at me like, well, what does that mean? So, stoicheia has the idea of elements. And I'm going to get ahead of myself here. The slide comes up in a couple of slides. But elements, they come up with basically three meanings for elements. One is sort of the classical Greek idea out of Greek philosophy that the basic elements of the universe are uh, fire, wind, uh, earth, and water. Is that it? It's one option. The second view, uh, the second view on on this is that the idea of stoicheia relates to just the basic elemental things of something, whatever the something might be. And the third view, the third view is that it has the idea of the unseen 
elements controlling the universe. What would we call that? The unseen elements that are ruling the universe. Think that could mean angels or fallen angels? Well, let's look at that as a possibility. Now, that's one of the things that I thought about when I was looking at this with... um, Uh, in terms of what Spiegel says, because when he finishes, he says something to the effect of, well, regardless of which one view one takes with regard to the meaning of the word storkeia, it is important to observe that 2 Peter 3, 10, and 12 do not say all elements or even the elements will be destroyed, but just elements. So the lack of the article may very well indicate that the most severe fiery judgments of the coming day of the Lord in which elements are destroyed. I think he misses something. What if heaven is a synonym of elements as in synonymous parallelism? Now, if we take that third meaning that the elements relates to angels which it does in a passage in Galatians and a passage in Colossians, which we'll see in just a minute, then that would make sense if it's a synonym with heaven because who lives in the heavens? The angels. So we have to ask this question, is heaven being used literally here to refer to the stars, sun, moon, galaxies, cosmos, etc.? Or is it a figure of speech for the inhabitants of the heavens? And I'm going to go with that. And why do I do that? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy, and I've said this for years, that in three passages in Deuteronomy, Moses calls on two witnesses for the covenant. Remember, something's confirmed by two witnesses according to the law. What are his two witnesses? The heavens and the earth. Now, is he using the terms heavens and earth literally to refer to the literal sun, moon, stars out in the, in the universe? Well, they're, they're inanimate. How can they witness? Is he talking about just Gaia, the planet earth, and the, the, the earth itself? No, that's inanimate. He's talking, he's using what's called a, a synecdoche. This is a figure of speech where you put uh, the thing inhabited for those who inhabit it. And so when he calls upon heaven and earth to witness against you this day, he's talking about the only two groups of sentient beings, that's intelligent beings, that God has created are the angels who inhabit the heavens and humanity that inhabits the earth. So his two witnesses to the covenant are the angels and mankind. Make sense? Now, if heavens then is talking about the inhabitants of heaven, and stoicheia, one of the three meanings of stoicheia is those immaterial beings who run the universe, then we have a really clear parallel there. And I think that makes a lot of sense so that the inhabitants of heaven, or what heaven refers to, and earth refers to the inhabitants of earth, and this is a standard Hebraism. The Hebrew word is shemaim, which the I-M ending tells you it's a plural. 
But many, many times it is translated as a singular. I call on heaven and earth. But literally it's I call upon the heavens and the earth because there's more than one level in the heavens. There's the first heavens, which is the atmosphere around the earth, the second heavens, which is the universe, and the third heavens, which is the throne room of God. So it's Stokeia. Here are the, th- the four basic meanings according to the grammars, but the first is earth, water, air, and fire, classical Greek philosophy. Is that what gets burned up? Now, a lot of people take that view, and, if they, and so it makes sense for them to take that view because they're seeing that the physical universe is being destroyed. Uh, second view is the idea that it's just the basic components of something, The third and fourth view, I think, are very close, and I'll show you why biblically in just a minute. Third is the physical heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, stars, etc. And the fourth view is the transcendent powers, the invisible powers that are in control of the events of the world. Galatians 4.3, Colossians 2.8 and 20, uh, what we would refer to as the angels or the demons. So what do we call these heavenly bodies in the Bible? Look at Isaiah 34, 4. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved. Does that sound like 2 Peter 3? Yes, it does. When does this take place? It takes place at the time of the judgment, the day of the Lord. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll, which makes people think, oh, everything is absolutely destroyed. But that doesn't, that's not what it means. The heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their host shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Now, if you take the host of heaven as referring to the physical planets and stars and moons that are out there, then, then you're going to assume that, well, they're all going to fall down. Everything's physically going to be destroyed. Well, let's look at how that phrase is used. In Isaiah 24, 21, and 22, we read, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. Now, who's that referring to? That same word, host. We sing it when we sing, a mighty fortress is our God. Tzabaot, the Hebrew word, means armies are host. It will come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. Who's that? That's the angels. They're going to be judged at the end of the tribulation. The demons are going to be judged at the end of the tribulation. And when Satan is cast into the, the abyss, I don't think that's just Satan. If we were to say that that um, that Biden was defeated in Afghanistan, we mean America was defeated in Afghanistan. He's the head, and he represents all of us, unfortunately. And so, when we we look at this, and and we look at the passage, Satan is cast into the bottomless. I think all the demons are cast with him. His whole uh, organization is cast into the abyss, and there are no demons running around during the millennium at all, and Satan's not running around tempting anybody. 
So they're judged at the end of the tribulation. And on the earth, uh, and they'll be punished on high, the host of heaven, and on the earth, the kings of the earth. Well, we read that phrase, kings of the earth, all the time in Revelation. The men of the earth, the kings of the earth, that's referring to the leaders who are against God in the tribulation. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison after many days. They will be punished. So that's Isaiah 34.4. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. It's the angelic hosts. This brings the angelic revolt right front and center to this whole issue. Now, how do we know that? Look at Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we have some passages that make it appear as if host of heaven refers to the physical objects in the sky. Deuteronomy 4.19, And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven. So it looks like, and I haven't had time, because I, I just pulled this together, rushing toward the end of the day, to see just what the grammar is there in the Hebrew, but I'll be checking that out in the next couple of weeks. The sun, moon, and stars, all the host of heaven, that could just refer to the physical things that are there. But remember, the demonic objects of worship, I mean, the physical objects of worship have demons associated with them, as we've seen in a number of passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17.3, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, those are demons, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven. So that verse makes it seem like it could be either one, probably both, because the phys- worshiping the physical objects as gods, there are demons associated with that. But it's very clear in 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen that the host of heaven is referring to the an- angelic host. Micaiah, the godly prophet who is... Uh, get, is confronting Ahab and Jehoshaphat with the uh, with the word of the Lord says, "I saw the Lord sitting on its throne and all the host of heaven standing by." Now, this isn't talking about the sun, moon, and stars standing at attention around the throne of God. It's talking about all of the angelic hosts standing around the the throne of God on His right hand and on His left. And in Second Kings seventeen sixteen. We read, so they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven. They're not worshipping the literal planets. They're worshipping all the host of heaven as these gods and serve the Baal, which, which identifies the fact that they're worshipping these demon gods. And then Nehemiah 9, 6 in his prayer said, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So right there, that's not talking about the physical planets and stars. That's talking about the angels. So this starts coming together. When the passage talks about the fact that the, 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 the heavens will pass away with a great noise, it's talking about, perhaps, a judgment on those who indwell the heavens, Isaiah 34, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But it's not melt, it's luo, 
which never means melt. And it, mean, it has a range of meanings, to loosen, to release, to set free. But in John 2.19, this is interesting. Jesus answered and said to them, they say, oh, if somebody said that, that you're going to uh, destroy the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The word destroy there is luo. So it had, in some context, it has that meaning of destruction, but he was referring to his body. Did they annihilate his body? Was his body annihilated? No. It's not annihilation. It was, he was given a new resurrection body, but it came from the elements of his mortal body. That's why the tomb, it's so important to understand the tomb is empty. If Jesus had just been given a brand new body, which would be naos, if he'd been given a brand new body, then the old body could have stayed in the grave. But the old body is transformed into the new body. Now, when this happens, uh, you have this, this indication of heat and, and this change in the earth. Actually, I should, I should um, have put the Greek word for burned up there first, but we'll get back to it. It's not burned up. Both the earth and the works that are in it. By earth, it means the, the inhabitants of the earth. And the works that are in it, that is the inhabitants of the earth and their good deeds that are in it will not be burned up. That's not what it says. We'll get there in a minute. I'll have the word for you. It means are discovered. It means are found. It means exposed. So there's a judgment here that exposes the failure of their, their righteousness. Malachi 3.2 talks about the coming of the Lord. It's going to be like a refiner's fire. Malachi 3.3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. This is the day of his coming. This isn't at the end of the, of the millennial kingdom. This is at the, at the end of the tribulation, preparing, purifying the earth for his kingdom. He will purify the sons of Ur- Levi and purge them as gold and silver. See, that idea of purging them as gold and silver is the idea of smelting ore and getting rid of the impurities. It doesn't destroy the, the gold or the silver. It gets rid of the impurities. There are topographical changes. There are so many passages that Isaiah 2.2 says that it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the millennial temple, shall be established on the top of the mountains. It's not on top of the mountains right now. In fact, you... you the mountain it is on on the ridge of Moriah is lower than the ridge is all around it. Mount of Olives is higher. Mount Zion's higher. All of these are higher than the Temple Mount. But this is going to be the highest thing around, so there's going to be some sort of upheaval. Isaiah 43 through 5 says that uh, there's going to come a time when they say, "Let every God will say, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. What happens when you raise the valleys and lower the mountains? It gets level. There's going to be a leveling in Israel. The topography is going to change. Uh, let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. 
in Zechariah 14, 4 through 5, says the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that the half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountain will reach to Azel. And then a couple of verses later it says, and in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, which is the the Dead Sea, which won't be dead anymore, and the other half towards the Western Sea. And it will do this in summer as well as in winter. And in summer, things dry up in Israel, so this is not going to be an intermittent stream. You have other verses, Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heeds at his presence, yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Amos 1.2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Micah 1.4, the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Isaiah 2.19, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. They'll go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. There's going to be all these earthquakes and the the heavens and the star, everything is involved. Massive topographical changes on the planet, including down by the, the Red Sea, Going towards Egypt, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. Complete change of where the rivers are, where the Nile is, everything. Isaiah thirteen thirteen, God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place. Ezekiel thirty eight twenty, the mountains shall be thrown down the steep places shall fall, every wall shall fall to the ground. Joel 3.16, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and earth will shake. That's going to change everything, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. Nahum 2.10, she is empty, desolate, and waste, the heart melts and the knees shake. So this is one word for melting which has the idea of dissolving. Amos 9.5, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, but it isn't destroyed. So we have melting language in Second Peter 3, but it's talking about the renovation of the planet, not the destruction and annihilation of the planet. Uh, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell there mourn, all of it shall swell like the river and, uh, sub- and subside like the river of Egypt. Haggai 2.6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and the dry land. Jesus talks about this in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 29, and 30. Um, in those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What are the powers of the heavens? That's the angels. That's the stoicheia. That word's not used here, but that's what that, that, that fits. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Ezekiel 22.20, as men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin in the midst of a furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it, or to smelt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. Is that a destruction of the Jews? 
an annihilation of the Jews? No. It's not an annihilation of Jerusalem. It is a purification judgment of Jerusalem. When they come out the other end, they're going to be purified. Psalm 46, 6, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. Not talking physical annihilation. Psalm 75, 3, the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. It's not talking about annihilation. Okay? So, 7, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The it there, this is from the end of verse 10. Both the earth and the works that are in it. The it refers to the earth and the inhabitants of the earth. In Isaiah 9.19 it says, Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, or through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire, no man shall spare his brother. But they're not annihilated. This is just divine judgment. Isaiah 10, 16, Therefore the Lord and the Lord of hosts will send leadness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a fire. Uh, kindle a burning, like the burning of a fire. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, For the, behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all the flesh, and the slain of the Lord will be many. This is the prelude to the second use of new heavens and new earth. Um, Isaiah ten seventeen. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and its briars in one day. Judgment. The light of Israel is the Messiah coming to judge at the end of the tribulation. Isaiah 29, 6, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. But it's not talking about annihilation. So verse 11 says, since all these things will be dissolved. Now the, the phrase all these is a neuter plural. Now you have two words back in verse 10 that are neuter plurals. And one is uh, stoicheia, and the other is the works. But if it's referring to uh, stoicheia, it makes more sense because what is it saying? It says here that these things will be dissolved. The word here dissolved is luo again. And if you look at verse 10, it talks about the fact that the stoicheia will melt with fervent heat. Okay, so there, and the melt there is luo. So stoicheia is going to be destroyed, luo, and in verse, the next verse it says all these things refers back to the stoicheia being luo, and this is luo. If you know the Greek, you see that it's using the same words all through here, which connect it together. Now this is the slide where I got in, it will be burned up. It's horisco which means to discover or to find something, to expose something in the ESV and the RSV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible translated as disclosed. I think both of those are good. Uh, what's gonna, it's not going to be burned up. There's going to be a disclosure of the value of the works, just like at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, only this is at the day of the Lord. 
And so verse 11, he says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, the whole point in all of this is there's a judgment coming for all of us. We're going to go through to the rapture and have the judgment seat of Christ, but everyone else goes through, may go through the tribulation. There's judgment coming. And what he's saying is, in light of this, what manner of person should you be? How should you live today in light of eternity? Which is what I keep saying all the time. How should you live in holy conduct? The word holy conduct, holy means to be set apart to the service of God. How should you be in the way you live your life as set apart to the service of God? And godliness, uh, it really relates to the old English word piety, but as I've been teaching in my uh, church history class, when you have the pietist movement in the late, um, uh, late 17th century, it didn't mean sort of a pseudo-humility and self-righteousness kind of piety. We, the words changed. They were in contrast to people who were very formal, and as long as you had the right doctrine and you repeated the right creeds, you were okay. And they came along and said, no, it's about a personal relationship and walk with the Lord, and that's what piety referred to was their spiritual life. So the question for us is what manner of person, how should we live our life in terms of a set-apart conduct, a set-apart way of life, and our spiritual life? Now let's go to verse 12. Now this phrase is translated, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. And the first word, which is looking for, is the Greek verb spudo. Now, we saw a similar word in our study on Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, be diligent to maintain or to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's spudazo. This is spudo. And it has that same idea of, of, of diligently watching for something. So diligently watching for, and then the word that is translated hastening uh, doesn't refer to speeding something up, but it has the idea of, of earnestly looking for something, earnestly looking for something. And so it is the idea of being diligent in watching, diligently watching, and uh, earnestly or eagerly anticipating the coming of the day of God, which is just a synonym for the day of the Lord. Because of which, that is because of the day of the Lord, the heavens will be dissolved. There's our word luo for the third time. And this is the se second time we get heavens mentioned. Uh, will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements, the stoicheia, will melt with fervent heat. And it's luo again. So this has the idea, again, of, of judgment on the, the inhabitants of the heavens is what I would, how I would interpret this. This is talking about the manifold judgments that come at the day of the Lord, at the end of the tribulation, when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to judge the fallen angels, he's going to judge the unsaved, uh, cast Satan and all of the demons into the lake of fire. 
all the host of heaven, Isaiah 34, 4. So it's the idea of, and I translated it this way at the bottom paragraph, watching for and earnestly expecting the coming. Parousia again. So we had Parousia back with the scoffers saying, where's the promise of his coming? We have the day of the Lord, which talks about his, which describes his coming in judgment. And now we have Parousia, Parousia in, back in verse 3, and here are bookends, telling us that everything in between is talking about the coming of the Lord. It's not the millennium. And it goes on to say, because of which the heavens will be loosed or destroyed. And that's John 2.19 when Jesus said, if you destroy this temple. So in verse 13 it says, nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Number one, he says, we are looking for this. Okay, if we're looking for this now, it's not something that's going to come after the tribulation and after a thousand years. It's not. Good. We're not looking for something that's coming. It got a thousand, at least a thousand and seven years intervening. Why would we be looking for that? That's a long way off. A thousand and seven years ago, this is twenty twenty one. So that was in a thousand fourteen. That's a long time ago. Eleventh century, early eleventh century. So we're, according to his promise, the promise is what? The promise is what's mentioned by the, uh, by, the, by the false teachers. You know, where's the promise of his coming? And now it ties it together. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's according to Isaiah 65, where it uses new heavens and new earth. And Isaiah 66, where it uses new heavens and new earth, that's the kingdom of the God's servant, the Messiah, and righteousness will reign on the earth. So that ties it together. We flew through that. I'm going to come back because there's several loose ends that need to be sort of clarified, and I know everybody needs to hear that at least ten more times to understand it all, but I hope that by going through all of those verses at one time, it gives you an understanding of how there, is, there are these uh, connections, a repetition of key words and connections uh, within the structure that hold together on that this basic interpretation. And everybody's still guessing on Stoicheia, and I think that, that that would be maybe my one contribution to clarifying what this passage means. All right. Is that fun? Everybody confused? No? Some are, some aren't. All right. Father, thank you for this time, and we look forward to and anticipate, uh, eagerly look forward to the coming of our Lord especially the rapture. And, Father, we see just how the devil's world is just just collapsing into chaos and anarchy and hopelessness. And, Father, we pray for us as believers that we might have a great desire to, to proclaim the message of hope, true hope, 
genuine hope, confident expectation of the return of Christ in our eternal destiny in heaven to those who are lost and confused and fearful and worried. Father, we pray for this nation that there might be a change, a turning around. But if not, we pray that we might be steadfast in the midst of opposition. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.